Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. ETG gang, we've got a hell of an episode for you today. We got CP chatting with CP. That's Christian Pillsbury with Chris Paldoyan. You know what time it is. Christian Pillsbury is the proprietor of Eden Rift, a winery in California's Cienega Valley. Christian spent time at INSEAD, the school where I just finished my MBA. And from France, he moved all around the world, spending time in Hong Kong and Singapore when he worked as the wine buyer for Duty Free and then as Corvin's director of APAC. Christian has seen a lot of different parts of the wine business, and his holistic approach to the world of wine is grounded in both clear-eyed strategy and rugged naturalism. If you've been in this industry, you know you've got business people, you've got poets, and it's really exciting when you can talk to someone who can appreciate both the business and the art of wine in equal measure. Christian and I talk about who actually buys wine at the duty-free shops and airports, the Gatsby and wine scene of Hong Kong. Napa Cab Jumping the Shark, the aestheticization of natural wine, John Steinbeck, and California's Harvest this year. You can tell we cover a lot of different ground. Christian was kind enough to zoom in directly from the vineyard, straight up farm to table. So you'll hear throughout the episode the occasional squawk of a bird or chirp of a cricket. It definitely adds to the vibe. So with that in mind, let's just get into it. Here's my man, Christian. Are we doing a video cast or are we doing a vocal it's just yeah. vocal just out out in my little backyard here holy shit that's a good backyard that's nice it's, you know it's it's all right the, that's a little house and then i've got vineyards all over that way all right so, there we go yeah very sick very fun how you doing i'm good man just um looking for that post mba job so refreshing my linkedin drafting cover i know how it is so fun, you know, truly magical. Yeah, you're you're gr- grinding the network. Yeah, the the hashtag uh, hustle mentality is definitely kicking in. Yeah, this is this week though, because it was the first week of the month. Everyone that was starting their intakes at Bain and McKinsey and BCG and all that yeah. shit, just like an inundation on LinkedIn of people proud to announce their start at one of those consulting firms. But, well, you know, it's it's one of those funny things. Like you're at Intiad and you're like, oh my god, the holy grail is. McKinsey, if I could only get in McKinsey, like my life is set forever. Yeah. And then and I know all these guys. I know a couple of people who, who stuck around after school, made partner, they're doing very well, they love their work. But I know more people who are like, the fuck did I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's the big hurdle, like maybe five years from now. It'll be first who went from consultant to manager, and then who went from manager to partner, and then who splits yeah. off, starts their own project or something like that. But there's always gonna be a greener grass and a better pasture somewhere else that next climb whatever it ends up being so totally you were there in 07 right that was the time that you were there i was there yeah so we arrived in 06 i was there for 07 and then i stayed through 08 09 that had to have been a crazy time because when you were sticking around there you saw mba students arriving that were in the midst of like the international like financial crisis, right? So That's right. Coming into campus, matriculating into that shitstorm, and then graduating out into that shitstorm. It, it, it was a tsunami. It hit the world all kind of all at once, right? Everything happened. Everything hit all at once, and everything went to shit. Do you remember what kind of the vibe was on campus? Were people like freaking out? I think you know, in Seattle's generally have a little more perspective than most people of their age, I suspect. 
right? Otherwise, you wouldn't choose INSEAD. It's it's not an obvious choice if you're looking for an obvious path. So I think that people had a little more perspective, maybe, and were kind of like, "Thank goodness I'm here." Like this is a great a great environment to be spending money and investing in your future, as opposed to trying to make money. That's <laughs> fair. Know? That's fair. So, so I think people are pretty chill about it, and you get so much uh, so much guidance from the uh, professors at INSEAD, and I think they've all also got a tremendous amount of perspective. When world class economists is like, this is a contraction. This is why it's happening, and this is why it's gonna end just like they all do. <laughs> I mean, I think that gave people a little bit of confidence. No, for sure. For sure. The reason I, and thank you for your flexibility uh, on letting me slip a day. I mean, it's just been, it's been nuts, uh, yeah. you know, because business, business doesn't slow down, but harvest picks up. And so in the wine business, we get harvest and our busiest quarter simultaneously. Oh, right. Yeah. You go right in from harvest to OND, H-O-N-D. Hond. H-O-N-D. Yeah. There you go, baby. How do you, how do you navigate that with like a smaller team when there's not like a 200 person staff where there's a regional sales director, someone that manages sales for each individual state? Like how do you, how do you manage so many different spinning plates? It's mostly me trying to like play air traffic controller and you know, you're going to have shortcomings. So you try to identify where they're going to be and manage them. You don't know where your big wins are going to be at first. And so you just want to like keep some energy and some powder dry to be able to, you know, exploit opportunities as they arrive. But really, I, I'm not, not pessimistic, but a little bit conservative now after years and years of doing this. And I'm like, something's going to go wrong. Let's just get ready for that. And as long as that doesn't kill us, we're in the game. And when you say something go wrong, it's like, it could be on the harvest side. It could be on the... Something's going to go wrong with harvest. Like, yeah, I had I had two critical vehicles break down on the first day of harvest. It's perfect time. It's not in full swing yet. We're able to fix those problems and get back to work. That's a great problem to have because you're going to have problems. Uh, you know, our, our interns this year are great. Our, you know, so it's all scary until you've been through, like you hit a certain number of what you perceive to be existential crises before you realize that very little is existential. No, for sure. (laughs) And when you think about the past couple of years, and I know at least when I talk to my restaurant buddies and the challenges they have finding staff, does that same challenge sourcing labor for a short period of time or an extended period of time, however long it is for harvest, that same labor shortage in hospitality, are you seeing it on your end? 100%. I mean, but we always have trouble sourcing labor because we're, we're a little bit isolated. Like, you know, we're, we're one of the wine and spirits magazine called us one of the top 100 wineries in the world this year, right? We're not making shit wine, but we are a little bit outside of Napa and Sonoma. So we don't get to rely on the shared resources and shared ambitions of interns coming into Napa and Sonoma with that being their vision. So we need to get people here who are willing to be off the beaten path, which takes a lot more work. We don't have the infrastructure to rely on for managing interns and things like that. So we spent about six months out of our year making sure we're going to be staffed for harvest. Do you want to place listeners? Where where are you exactly? Sure. So I'm at Eden Rift Vineyards. Uh, and so Eden Rift is an hour east of Monterey and an hour south of San Jose. So basically uh, the heart of uh, California, Northern California. Uh, the winery was founded in 1849. So it's the oldest operating vineyard uh, in the state. It actually predates the foundation of California by a year. And... Um, so we're really well positioned for what at the time was the state capital, which was Monterey. <laughs> so go, we used to be in the middle of everything and now we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So like 
being in the middle of nowhere, I imagine that creates some challenges. I mean, no, no Trader Joe's nearby, no Air One. Where, where, where do you go to, to get those creature comforts of a city? My Trader Joe's is an hour away. And so I, I will do that. Uh, and San Francisco is two hours north. And so I split my time between living on the vineyard and, and being up in the city because I haven't yet handed in my city mouse card. Um, and, you know, in the era of uh, Amazon and Gold Belly, we can have anything we want. And how does that play out in terms of like, you're in the midst of harvest right now. So in terms of getting people to come and help, or if something breaks down, when you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, what resources are available to you when shit hits the fan? Oh, it's great. Um, here, we don't get to rely as much on sort of professional networks of, you know, I got a guy who does this specific kind of, you know, equipment repair. What I do rely on is a network of neighbors who are also winemakers. Uh, and we all kind of scrabble together. And it's like a village where, you know, last year, one of my neighbor's uh, scales uh, stopped working halfway through harvest. And we have to weigh all the fruit when it comes in. It's a fundamental step. And so we just set it up, basically set up a supply chain where every truck that was going to take wine from his vineyard to his winery would stop by our winery and we weigh it for them and certify and then go back to that state. And, you know, these are just you know, friendship networks. They don't, uh, it's not a financial consideration. It's just, we're all trying to keep each other uh, successful. If you were to talk a little more specifically about the Sienega Valley, how is it different than maybe some of the other AVAs that people might be familiar with in the Central Coast? What are kind of the distinguishing features? Yeah, you, you would be forgiven for not necessarily knowing everything about Sienega Valley as an appellation. Uh, it's an old one, dates back to the 80s. Uh, but it really, I, I think we're, the, we're one of two wineries in Sienega Valley that uh, it sells to um, uh, the rest of the country. I mean, there are only two, I think, two active wineries in, in this appellation. So when you look at Napa and Sonoma, these are wine, these are wine regions which are uh, rich and well-developed. And when I say rich, I don't mean just monetarily. I mean in terms of the, the nature of their soils. Yields are quite high. Their, uh, their wines are flamboyant and, and the like. For us, our appellation is really defined by a harder way of doing things, which I think gets us to a better place. And so it's, it, we're right on the uh, San Andreas Fault. Like that's my next door neighbor is the fault itself. We're at the edge of the Pacific plate. So if you head west, the next stop is Korea on our plate. And then on the other side of the street, uh, the American plate begins. So we're in this wonderfully sort of tectonically active zone. And so what that gives us is it gives us all of the undersea soils, which have given rise to a band of limestone. But then we also get the igneous rock of, of decomposed granite mixed in. And it's this ultimate soil for, for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but it only exists in this appellation, really. My next door neighbor is a limestone quarry, a pit mine, which is ugly until you know what it is, and then it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And these are the soils that underpin Burgundy and underpin Champagne. Uh, and so, you know, there, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay just love it. So we're not having to farm. We don't get the benefit of farming a place where the grapes come easy, but the grapes that do come are... I think the best in the state. I imagine a lot of warm days, cool nights. You've got those specific breezes coming in. You're near a pretty big mountain range as well, right? It's the Gavilon mountain range. You know, what's funny is it's actually, it's a beautiful name and it's a beautiful range, but it's kind of tiny. Really? And we're at the very, we're at the very head of it. And, uh, you know, we're at uh, 1400 to, or 1200 to 1600 foot elevation is basically where our vineyards are. So we are 20% terraced vineyards, very steep slopes. Um, mm -hmm. That's part of why the, the winemaking here is so rugged, 
but the, the range itself is, you know, it, it, it's called a mountain range is I think aggressive. It counts in height, but it's, it, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a lovely little place. Uh, and it's, you know, it's where John Steinbeck sort of crafted his vision of what California felt like. Do you feel like your grapes are full of wrath as well? Is there a similar sort of vibe there? <laughs> yeah. yeah you, the story of, uh, the story of, of scarcity and depredation. Uh, oh man, brutal. No good. I mean, did you like to get in the zone when you first acquired the property? Did you read a bunch yeah. of Steinbeck works or were you already a Steinbeck fan when you approached Eden Rift? Oh, I was already a Steinbeck fan. When I came here, I didn't understand how profoundly important the history of this area was to me as a Californian, to me as a, as a winemaker, uh, into this estate. And when we came in here, I knew the estate was special. You can see that when you roll in, but I didn't know how important it was. Uh, and so as the oldest operating vineyard in California, that's really something. One of the five original great vinifera estates in the first half of the century was amazing. You know, we were selling internationally at the turn of the 20th century uh, from this property. And it was just kind of lost to the mists of time. And a lot of me figuring out or us figuring out what was what had gone on here, that history had all been lost. And so we actually had to go back and not just reading Steinbeck. I mean, Steinbeck's a wonderful, I love Steinbeck, I always have, and it's a wonderful way to get a flavor of what California is about. I, I had to actually go out and try to learn the history of a place where the history had never been recorded since the age of computers. And if nobody ever, I mean, if, if it wasn't famous in 2000, it never got digitized. And so we actually had to go and buy books, manuscripts, and documents that would create contemporaneous sort of data points. And so, you know, I had to go out and find original copies, talking original books, talking about the winemaking down here, talking about what was planted. But then, of course, a lot of that is, is written by memory. So then you have to go out and find corroborating data. And so I actually had to buy a copy of the American census from 1860 because it has a whole volume on agriculture, which would, all I needed was the one number that said how many grapes, acres of grapes are planted right where we are in 1860. So I could corroborate things that had been written about that time. And so, I mean, it, that's a really exciting and fun process, uh, but it took years. Yeah. Before Wikipedia, we just had the census to rely on. That's how we got our information. That's wild. That's right. So I know you're drinking La Croix right now. I can see you taking mm -hmm. a sip of that. Uh, what was the last bottle of wine you cracked open? Uh, that was last night. Uh, I, it's still too early for me today. Don't be disappointed. Come on. It's the weekend. It's Saturday. I don't know what you're doing. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm going to catch up. I'm, 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 at a, I'm pouring wine all afternoon on a, on a sunny lawn and um, we're doing a special event. So I will definitely get my quota. My, uh, quota. Uh, but no, last night I had a wine. Actually, it's an interesting uh, new type of wine it's it's a it's a it's something called an nda wine so the brand is unimportant these are being done by small players with access up in napa valley you know as the end of cabernet kind of and, and i'm this is all inside baseball of course the listeners at home love that <laughs> well you know the, the world of big expensive cabernet is kind of coming to an end it's been tapering off and obviously i have a perspective since i'm a pinot noir maker uh but the the great halcyon days of like $700 American Cabernet is kind of coming to an end. Um, I think people are going, you know, I, my, my sellers either full of it and I don't drink it that much, or they're starting to question the value proposition, or there's so many American Cabernets that are in that price point to take them just because that's what the economics now depend on, on land basis, or because there's so much ego at play. You don't want to make, you don't, you don't want your wine to be less expensive than your neighbor's. 
everybody went charging for this price point, and there aren't that many wines, in my opinion, that are really worth that. And so what's happening is these guys can't stop making wine, uh, and they can't let anybody know that they're not selling it, so they can't put it on sale. And so what do you do? So there's this uh, thing called the bulk market, and so a lot of these Cabernet producers are taking the wine that they that is surplus to sales requirement, uh, not the external numbers, but the internal numbers, and they sell it at the back door to these guys with access who uh, have to sign, you know, pretty strident NDAs. And so they call they call them now NDA wines. And so I was drinking a wine last night. You're drinking Whispering Falcon or something like that? I was drinking I was drinking Whispering Falcon that instead of spending, you know, $800 on, I spent 60 bucks on and and the wines are the wines are fine, they're good. They're still they're young, they're oaky, they're, you know, hedonistic. It's like it's like uh, I don't know, it's like drinking a wine that's emulated on German chocolate, or uh, what is it, Black Forest cake or something? You know. Oh hell yeah! There we go. <laughs> and so I mean, it's it's delicious. I cooked with it. I drank it. I you know, it's not normally my style, but I really think it's an interesting innovation in the world of wine. So how long does it go? Does it go from being this inside baseball thing that you know about, where there are these NDA wines, before it actually trickles down to the point that we see some sort of like seismic shift in the way in which wine is made in the U.S either in the way that it's marketed or the way that it's sold, things, things along those lines. Well, I th- you know, I think we're already seeing it. I, I think that if you, if you look at the wine businesses that exist inside the United States, I think we've got like three and a half permutations of how wine is done. And I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to draw a Gantt chart in my head right now. So there we go. <laughs> I apologize. But, um, you know, you've got, you've got the sort of the commercial macro prisoner style like it's owned by a massive multi-billion dollar corporation uh the wine the prisoners sponsor the pod (laughs) are they really no no i I okay good they've got the money to we should get them on board with it no after after i say what i'm gonna say they're not gonna sponsor you okay let it spray Uh, let let them have the smoke let it out No, no, it's it's all it's all fine. It's just they're making a wine that's basically built by focus groups. It's incredibly successful. They've made fortunes on it, but it's it's not a wine that I, in the way I consider wine to be something of place and tradition and you know singular artistic vision and any of those beautiful things that draw me to wine. That is you know perfectly good. It's red. It's alcoholic. It resembles wine in all chemical manner. Uh, but it doesn't fit the ultimate uh, um, criteria for me. And then, you, you know, so that's that, that sort of macro, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases, and, they, and, and it's, it's sold to you as if it's a, a really thoughtful product. It just isn't. I don't know if I can say that, but there you go. And then, you know, you get, you get the, uh, the, the Cabernet uh, sort of world, that high-end Napa Valley you know, they're, they're, those vineyards are selling for a million dollars an acre right now. You can't afford not to charge astronomical sums. And when you do that, the wine has to be hedonistic, flamboyant, uh, you know, not necessarily refreshing. Every bottle is a showpiece. And I love that. It's fun to drink. I just can't drink it all the time. And then there's sort of a more traditional part of the wine business, which is what I fell in love with. And I think that's where Eden Rift finds itself, which is, uh, you know, this is the, this is the artistic vision sort of, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but we've got a very specific 
relationship to this land, to this winemaking style, to our vision, to our winemaker, to our team, where we're trying to make a wine that is just showcasing sort of minerality, acidic precision, and harkens back to a look at, you know, sort of American winemaking from days past. And as a subset of that, you get like the natty wine movement where our wines are fully natural. I mean, they're they're organic, they're indigenous yeast, native yeast. We don't inoculate anything, no enzymes, no tricks. We're making wines that you would have made 200 years ago. Uh, the only innovation is that we use stainless steel instead of uh, redwood vats. But, you know, we're still using traditional handmade barrels and the whole thing. And it's not efficient, but it's beautiful. And I think that if we if we embrace beauty, we can find commercial success kind of as an out, as an, if we do our job authentically enough, the market rises to meet you. That's my underlying prayer. Anyway, I'll make sure to send that to a uh, constellation brands. I'll send them that, <laughs> that voice memo. Yeah, you do that. You do that. But, but I do think like, to your point, like we are seeing like the natty wine movement kind of uh, eating itself or jumping the shark or whatever on one extreme where you just have a lot of like really fucked up wine being marketed as good. Yeah. And you have people that have the means to discovering like Diamond Creek, oh, I do love Diamond Creek. or old bottles of Mayakamas or something. Oh, I do love Mayakamas. You're finding people appreciating these wines of the 1980s. If you can find old Napa from that era that it, it's still showing so, so well. And you find yeah. those stalwarts that have been making wine the same way for a long time. You've got Legends like True. Kathy Corson and stuff, you know, doing cool shit. Yeah, and Philip, Philip Togni and you know, yeah. all these guys are still making breathtaking, artisanal, thoughtful wines. They're still making wines that will make you fall in love with wine again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's something there's something magical about drinking, about drinking a bottle of wine and falling in love with a wine. And it doesn't happen every time, but when it happens, it's it's just a profound pleasure. Uh, and, you know, Maya Thomas Corson, Togni, you know, you're bringing up all these names that really are still devoted to that idea, um, as, as I hope we are. But then with the with the natty wine movement, I think we ended up with. I mean, when I was a young, when I was a young sommelier or you know young wine buyer, I just wanted to experience everything new, everything for the first time. And I think there's a bit of that in the natty world. I'd be like, oh my god, this is amazing because it's different and it's new, and it's a flavor that I can put in this bank of experience and it's going to make me better. And I'm, I'm so excited. And I approached it like a like a, like almost like reading a case study when you're in business school and you're like, Oh, this disaster is amazing. I love this disaster. Yeah. And you know, at a certain point you burn out on learning about disasters. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, kind of at the same time, you just get tired of drinking Pantomices and we don't call our wines natural because, you know, I don't, I feel like when you go, when you call your wine natty, sometimes you're apologizing. You're going, Hey, there's, there's high VA, there's volatile acidity. There's a little vinegar acid in there. But that's authentic and it tastes, and, and I love that. And so it's natural or it's got Britannomyces is natural or it's cloudy. It's natural. Our wines are all natural. You just never know it. And, and when I, based on, on flaws, and when I look to that movement, I go, well, look, Domingo, you know, DRC, Romani Conti is, is a natty wine. Latour is a natty wine. Uh, Loire is a natty wine. But they would never align themselves with a movement where where one of the fundamental principles is the wine should be weird and off and they're not unstable. doing a brutal bottling anytime soon. <laughs> but I mean, like when you, when you think back to like, you were talking earlier about falling in love with wine, right? Like, yeah. can you, can you think back to some of those early days, your, your salad days as a, as a young buck, you know, just seeking out new flavors, like wines, either yeah. particular bottlings or producers when you were, 
maybe living in Europe or spending time in Asia and discovering something new that you hadn't had before? Well, it happens all the time, even now. I mean, I can still remember there are some, there are some critical bottles which mark turning points in my understanding of wine and my love of wine, you know, and, and there, are, there are some of them I can name where, when, what it was, all that stuff. And, you know, those maybe are, those are hen's teeth, yeah. but you still look forward to them when they happen. You know, I remember being a, being a young wine buyer and I bought a bottle. I didn't know what it was, but the bottle was kind of cool. It was old and I could afford it. And that oftentimes was, was enough. Um, yeah. And it was, uh, it was a bottle of uh, 86 Cooley Clotus Serrant from uh, Nicolas Jolie. The goat of uh, which, biodynamics, baby. The goat of biodynamics. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and it was the first time I'd ever had a wine that was truly living. Uh, and I would, uh, you know, I, I was at a house party with some friends in San Francisco and, uh, I was that guy at a house party apparently where, you know, I opened the bottle in the, in the kitchen and I tried it and it was amazing, but weird. And Shannon, like I'd never, I don't know if I'd had Shannon like that before. The, the thing that was powerful to me was that, you know, first time I had it, it tasted like, smelled like, tasted like, uh, you know, grapefruits. And then, 10 minutes later when I tried it again, it was like, now it's like cashews. I'm like, wait, what happened there? This is a different wine than I just had 10 minutes ago. Yeah. yeah and that was the first time I really saw a wine alive. It's so funny because like he always goes to the like natural wine fairs of the Loire Valley in the spring, right. like around Ladive, the satellite fairs then. And this year I got the chance to go to the Nicolas Jolie booth. And of course they're handing yeah. out pamphlets. Everyone else just has their wines. There's no right. information. And they have a nice laminated pamphlet that's printed on like good cardstock. And they're like, here's the information about bio and, you know, and Sauvignon. It, it's just so funny to have this like very old school approach to the way in which you present your wine that's still like as cutting edge today as it was then. So it's super fun. Literally wrote the book on all that. Stuff. Yeah. From, from Earth to Sky, I think is the book you wrote. I was going to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done in the past before starting Eden Rift that I think would be really interesting for listeners to know. You spent a fair bit of time working with Duty Free and you talked about your time as a buyer. And that's an interesting market because most of us who have worked as buyers are currently buyers. You're thinking about your audience, who's coming into your space. And you have like a decent way of getting a sense of who those people are, where they're from, what zip codes, something like that. But when you're buying for duty-free on a international level, I'm curious how you think about what to place in the stores, like what's going to resonate with your customers, whoever these people are. How did you approach that customer base? That's a really good question, actually, uh, because it was a challenge that I found almost insurmountable on occasion. That's how I won the Pulitzer, baby. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when when I was at duty free, I mean, I was I was a tiny little business on a gigantic megalith um, that was operating in a in a space that is unlike any other retail world, where you know you're you're operating concession stores and airports and and some city locations, but basically airports. Uh, and you're paying a fee for every traveler coming through that airport, and then you're hoping you can sell them some. And that's kind of how the business is built. It's a wacky business, and it's an LVMH, predominantly LVMH-owned business at this point. So it's also a very professionally run consumer business. Uh, they're they're the kings. You know, I was based out of Hong Kong, and I had this you know amazing opportunity to learn about wine in a different way. I'm trying to think about in answering this question, how it differs from everything else. And it differs from everything else in almost every way. Yeah. Uh, I, I was, when I went in, my big plan was to upgrade 
how wine is done in that entire channel, uh, which was ambitious to say the least. And I was like, oh, we're going to have, you know, sommelier curated assortment city by city. We'll bring the young, cool sommeliers from that city, have them do a whole thing at the airport. I'll be able to, you know, where, where it'll be a special display that'll be just, you know, their vision of what the future of their area is. And then I'll use all the power of DFS to be able to get the allocations of the greatest wines in the world. So we'll have the most incredibly curated selection you can get anywhere on the planet. You got a case stack of uh, Jolie right there next to the uh, Toblerone. hundred percent. And I was like, we can do this. And I arrived and I was like, wow, shit, this is a big ship. <laughs> I don't know if I can turn this boat. And, and so instead we kind of did this really interesting thing where our customer, our customer was, you know, it was the, it, it changed over time, right? At first, it was the American traveler going to Europe. And then it was, uh, you know, the Japanese traveler going to Hawaii. And then it was uh, the Chinese traveler going through Singapore uh, and Hong Kong. And, you know, the, the sort of the big target uh, markets kept shifting. I mean, granted, this is over decades, not single years. And so you'd get to know who your, who your target client was. And my client at the time really... City by city, you had the drinking wines, and then you had the crazy wines. Drinking wines, mark by market, you just ran it on, on whatever your you know sales numbers told you, you had to do. It was basically like running the wine program at a at a grocery store. You know, yeah. sales sales numbers tell you what you need to do. You innovate on the periphery. You find out if you learn anything, you know, and repeat, rinse, repeat. But then we could we had the power to be able to. You know, I was the last commercial buyer in the world able to buy eighty two Lafitte. Ex Chateau. And, you know, there's a lot to that. I was the largest Carrois de Lafitte buyer in the world. You know, I had millions and millions and millions of dollars of Bordeaux sitting in warehouses. Yo, say that with your chest, man. That's pretty, that's a flex. That's a flex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is a flex. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't my, it wasn't my money, but, uh, you know, yeah, no, there was, there's nothing like doing a commercial visit once a year to Bordeaux mm-hmm. where you're their biggest client. Uh, that's red carpet. And it's a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, that's pretty sick. <laughs> yeah, I would go back to that. The Canales, it's just flowing. It's good to go. Oh, man. I, I showed up the, to Lafitte one year to taste all the on Primera and everything else. And I was invited to lunch, you know, with the MNLs and, uh, you know, going to the dining room. And of course, they want to show me everything they pour because they've got, you know, Chilean wines and they've got less expensive things from France and they've got the other, some or other portfolio products they want to present to me and the way to get me to sit down to lunch and taste through all these because i've got to taste a lot of wine in this role is they've opened up a couple of bottles of 90 lafitte at the end just in case one's not enough yeah there we go baby yeah so that's that was that was they they definitely did the baller moves which i love anyway silly story but um what we were able to do is there was this thing called masters of wine and spirits which uh dfs had done before my arrival but that was the most exciting part because what we did was we said if we could do anything if we could, and, and we did it for watches, we did it for fragrance, we did it for all kinds of different products. Uh, but the wine spirits one was the best. And we'd go to Singapore, we'd rent out a black and white, uh, you know, one of those beautiful old colonial houses. And we'd turn the entire house into a wine and spirits retail shop for, for one party for one evening. And I would get six or eight months putting together the assortment of products that were going to be offered there. And my only mandate was it could be something you couldn't get anywhere else ever. And so we'd put, all of our effort behind, and my, my team was three people, uh, so it was a pretty <laughs> it was a pretty tight crew. And you know, we we do we did you know 50, 50 years of magnums of Margot, so a fifty year vertical in magnum ex chateau, all signed by, by Paul Pentelier before he passed. 
or we'd do you know, 90 Lafitte in every, in every bottle size that was ever made ex Chateau. Or the last year I did it, I did a uh, Ferragamo briefcase with the six greatest wines ever produced, all ex Chateau. And, you know, I mean, those are, those are baller ideas. It doesn't matter what it costs. It can never be done again. And who would you find like in those instances, the people that are buying these, who are they? Like what was kind of, there are people who flew in, there are people who flew in from all over the world. Um, You know, most likely they also had polo ponies. Yes. They they fly in from all over the world to do this event. And it was this thing you'd never hear about if you weren't part of it. Interesting. I don't know. It's just such a fascinating thing. All the different duty freeze and are they structured the same way, depending on what market you're in, or do you need to store, like place the wine within the shop, design the wine space differently than you would design it in another airport, for instance? Yeah, most, so every airport was different. Everyone had different demographics. Everyone had different uh, consumer you know, behaviors. Um, and different layouts, different square footage. And so you'd have to really adapt. I mean, Singapore was an extraordinary temple to wine and spirits. It was the, the best wine and spirits store I'd ever seen. And it was built bespoke for that purpose. And it was, it was uh, really a jewel and the Changi uh, crown. And then you'd have smaller concession shops in places like JFK where it was, you know, it was fine, but Workaday would describe it pretty well. And as the buyer, did you have any control over the way in which the staff was trained in all of these different locations? And if so, how was it handled? Uh, the way I got started at DFS was they brought me in to actually design and implement a, uh, a global training program where basically we built a school that could be deployed market by market to train using Jungian archetypes, train their sales staff relatively quickly to understand key elements of both wine, but then consumer the consumer uh, process in making decisions around buying wine, understanding consumer need, understanding consumer response, and profiling people pretty quickly because you only have a few minutes with them in a shop. Totally, they got to catch that flight. It was a fascinating experience, yeah, and so based on based on that process, um, they they asked if I'd like to come over and, and take over the the wine business writ large. Sick. You talked about being based in Hong Kong. And I had the chance to visit Hong Kong a while ago, back in 2016. Yeah. And I was intrigued at kind of the buying preferences, like the way in which people consumed wine there and the similarities to British drinking preferences and where in which it deviated. I mean, what was your experience with that? I I arrived in Hong Kong in 2008, which was the year that tariffs went to zero. Uh, And Hong Kong became the center of the wine world very, very quickly. All the auction houses moved there. Um, you had tremendous wealth available there, of course, but you had tremendous taste and discernment. So you had people buying the greatest wines in the world all the time. But the difference between Americans, we do that. The British do that. You know, Europeans do that. The difference is in Hong Kong, they were popping those corks. And so, you know, the wines were coming in, they were being sold and they were being consumed. And so it was a generous and exciting and uh, exploratory time for wine. I mean, wine was has always been the center of my world. Uh, but when I was in Hong Kong, it was the center of both my professional, my social world, uh, everything. And kind of sounds exhausting. It, it was marathon. Yeah, it was marathon. But yeah, amazing dinners, amazing events, and we were just opening amazing wines all the time. And so yeah, there was a little bit of a kind of an expectation inflation. You'd be like, oh man, you know this. DRC, I don't know, Montrachet that you brought to dinner. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that's a little young? You'd be like, oh, I'm so embarrassed, right? And 
that's that's a bit of a I, I'm not doing humble brag. That's a hypothetical, but I'm sure it happened. <laughs> yeah. And how do you think it's changed, though? I mean, Hong Kong's been through so much political turmoil over the past couple decades. How since that time in 2008 to now, how has kind of the what you said was the drinking capital, the wine capital of the world? How has it shifted? How has it adapted? Uh, well, the last time I was in Hong Kong uh, was kind of early COVID. And, you know, I did the whole uh, quarantine thing. But, you know, the city's largely, uh, the, the city I was living in, the city visited in 16 is, is long since gone. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to get wildly political, but yeah. Hong oh, Kong so we is... can get wildly political on Constellation Grants <laughs> a Prisoner, but... We can, we can go China. political if you want. You no, can no, political no. if you want. No, no, no. I honestly, no, I mean, it, it's... Uh, the you know the, the pro democracy movement and the like were snuffed out. Politics has changed. Civil society has changed. It's not the city that I lived in, the city I love, uh, yeah. and it's not the place you visited in '16. And you know, I've got I've still got many, many, many friends there, uh, and they're still, you know, having fun. But I think that sense of exuberance uh, has largely been snuffed out. And so, has Singapore become that space, or where has that shift, that exuberance, gone? Singapore is a very different city. A lot of my friends are now living in Singapore. A lot of moved to Europe or the United States. You know, just because Hong Kong ends doesn't mean there's another Hong Kong on its heels. Yeah, that's fair. Special place, special time. For sure. To bring it all kind of like full circle, I'd love to hear how all of that led into taking over Eden Rift. Sure. So when I was living in Hong Kong, you know, I, I like I said, always been in wine. So I ran a startup there. Uh, did some, I did a lot of consultancy there, which is what then took me to duty free, ran duty free, then left duty free to, um, be the first hire for core event outside the U S and Europe where I launched, uh, EMEA. Mm, we didn't have any A. So, <laughs> so I, I guess, no, sorry, not even, no, it was, it was uh, it, we did APAC. Sorry. I was APAC for, for core event. My brain just doesn't work in acronyms anymore. I've been gone for too long. So I ran, uh, so launched APAC for Coravin and it was super fun, loved it. But I also, you know, I was really in love with wine still. And the idea that um, I was going to sell Coravins, which is an amazing and transformational product. It wasn't my, my future. I put in place a strategy that really was about, you know, democratization of that product. Uh, but that was going to put me in, you know, purchasing meetings at grocery stores and, and department stores in Thailand for the next few years. And I was like, that's not my path. Um, I love it. It's a lot of fun, but it's, it's not what I meant to do. And at the time, you know, half of America's uh, wineries were going to be sold during that decade that, that we were kind of in the middle of in 2016, because that's, that's when I made this choice, that half of the, the wineries are going to be sold due to, you know, inheritance and, and generational transition. But there was, my favorite wineries were kind of getting sold to the constellations of the world. And I've got nothing, there's nothing wrong with constellation. And they were there to catch these families that needed to make changes. But I really wanted to see if I could be a part of shepherding a great estate for another generation. You know, I didn't have any particular ambition to have my name on a, on a winery, but I wanted to help something great continue on and to find security and a future. Uh, and so I started sitting across the, the breakfast table from families they were looking at making this choice and I spent about a year and a half doing that. And I wasn't finding anything that really made a lot of sense. Uh, although a lot of wonderful relationships and, and the like that, that are still really important to me. 
But then a friend of mine, Josh Jensen, who just passed away recently, who was the owner of Calera, he was instrumental in being like, look, you got to come down. There's an estate in Hollister. And I kind of went, oh, Hollister, I don't know. But, I, you know, Calera's, Calera was a wonderful place. And uh, wines that I really loved and the guy that I really admired. So, you know, I said, fine, you know, what's, what's it cost me on a Monday? Uh, and so I drove down from San Francisco and drove in through the gates of an estate I'd never heard of. Uh, it was not called Eden Rift at the time. And it was a thunderbolt moment where I, I knew what my future was. I knew what I needed to be doing in this life. And it was really taking this estate that had fallen on hard times and committing to putting it back on its feet. And uh, not really in a, in a sense of like, this is going to be Pillsbury Estate and it's going to make me famous, but this place deserves to exist, deserves to be here. Uh, and maybe I can have an influence in doing that. Yeah, I mean, yo, that's all well and good. But as someone that has worked so internationally and seen so much shit all over the world, how do you satisfy that? Like, how do you scratch that global itch when you're just, as you said, plopped in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Central Coast? Like, how do you make that work? So how do you how do you go from being everywhere to being in one spot? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think our lives go through chapters, uh, not to get too metaphysical. But our lives go through chapters, and you know there were there was a lot of my life where I couldn't imagine the idea of working on one estate in one place for any period of time. Uh, but you know that's now the idea of being able to devote myself to a single project and see it transform, you know, vintage to vintage, improving vintage to vintage, building a team that's committed to it, vintage to vintage. There's something profoundly satisfying about that, and. You know, it was never my plan that we were going to be a local brand. Um, you know, from the first year, we I, we got distribution for the UK and for Denmark and for China and for Hong Kong and for Japan. And, you know, I always knew that if we were going to be a world-class brand, and I think if you're not or a world-class wine, if you don't have ambition to be world-class, it wasn't going to be necessarily the scale I wanted to try to take on. You need, you need an ugly goal uh, to keep you focused. If we weren't going to be in the world, we were never going to be world-class. And, you know, at first you're selling to your friends and your contacts and, you know, they're kind of going, well, I'll support you, Christian, because they don't know what you're doing yet. Uh, but that only lasts for the first little bit. And then, you know, the second order is always the, the moment of truth. And the second order started to come. And, um, you know, now we've been fortunate enough to, to build, you know, Eden Rift's not big. We're a very small estate, but I also believe in, in spreading our story as far as we can. So we're now in, you know, 26 states and uh, eight countries and something like that, uh, even though we're tiny and we're all a state and, you know, we've got a lot, a lot of work to do, but we're not just here. We're trying to be everywhere. I love it. Cool. Well, you've been yeah. super generous with your time. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd want to let listeners know? You know, I talked to a lot of folks about kind of their, their path. Uh, and my path is weird and Byzantine and has been very fortunate but it makes no sense looking forward. It only makes sense in the review. <laughs> so don't don't follow your passions to the you know to the absence of any personal achievement. But you know let let the things that interest you drive your direction. I mean, I guess that's my big takeaway. Hell yeah, there we go. And if people yeah. want to learn more about Eden Rift, where would we like to send them? Go to EdenRift.com or come on out and visit us in Hollister, California. There we go, baby. I love it. Cool, Christian. Thank right. you so much. Enjoy the rest of your harvest. Best of luck. Will do.
Thank you so much for listening. You can listen to every episode of By the Glass wherever you get your audio content, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, please go do that. That way you can get every episode that drops every week. Cool. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.